Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 222. We'll continue in the book of Daniel with a brief summary of chapters 4 through 7 and follow with some thoughts about the real purpose of power. Nebuchadnezzar himself recounts to us what transpires in chapter 4. Quote, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was tranquil in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and it frightened me, and thoughts upon my couch and visions in my head panicked me. And, unlike the dream he had previously in chapter 2, this time the king actually tells the sages, soothsayers, and magicians what he dreamt. A giant tree, fruitful and filled with animal life, whose shelter amidst its limbs. But then... A holy emissary from on high says to cut the tree down, but leave its roots. They cannot decipher the meaning. But Daniel, who, quote, in whom the spirit of the holy gods resides, hesitates with his interpretation. When the king urges him to speak, Daniel replies, quote, My lord, may the dream be for your enemies and its meaning for your foes. Because the dream does not bode well for Nebuchadnezzar, God has declared that the king will be deposed from his throne, chained in exile to live in the wild with the beasts, eating grass and getting soaked by the dew for seven seasons until, quote, You know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of man, and to whom he chooses, he gives it. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar must repent and show kindness to the poor before it's too late. But apparently the king has other things on his mind. Twelve months go by, and the king is walking on the roof of his palace, head filled with his achievements. Quote, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the house of the kingdom in the might of my power and for the honor of my glory? To which a voice from on high responds, The jig is up! The king is turned out, and quote, He ate grass like the ox, and from the dew of the heavens his body was moistened until his hair grew like eagles and his nails like birds. And then, quote, at the end of many days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes to the heavens and my mind returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and extolled the Eternal One, whose dominion is an eternal dominion and his kingdom for all generations. And with the return of the king's mind, the glory, grandeur, and splendor returns to him as well. And quote, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of the heavens, all of whose acts are truth and whose paths are justice. And who can bring low those who go about in pride? Chapter 5 introduces us to the new Babylonian king Belshazzar, son of Nebuchadnezzar, who made a great feast reminiscent of the feasts of the Persian kings we read about in the scroll of Esther. And like Ahasuerus, he acts a bit of the fool, demanding that the vessels his father looted from the temple in Jerusalem be brought out from storage so the noblemen, his wives, and concubines might drink wine from them. As the servants did as commanded, and the guests began to drink from the temple vessels, quote, At that very moment, the fingers of a man's hand came out and wrote before the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the palm of the hand that was writing. Then did the king's countenance change, and his thoughts panicked him, and the cords of his loins went slack, and his knees knocked together. Belshazzar summons his soothsayers, magicians, and diviners to interpret the writing, offering royal garb and jewelry as a reward, but, you guessed it, no one could interpret it. 
and the king grew even more panicked until one of his noblemen remembered that his father had a guy. So they bring Daniel before King Belshazzar, and the king says, quote, You are Daniel, who is of the exiles from Judah, whom my father brought from Judah, and I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods resides within you, and that enlightenment and understanding and exceeding wisdom are found within you. Before Daniel breaks it down, he has some words for Belshazzar about his father Nebuchadnezzar, who was haughty and brought low, until he learned his lesson about who the real sovereign on earth is, and how the son could use a similar lesson, because he's acting in a haughty and disrespectful manner, to the real sovereign on earth. So when the hand wrote, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Ufarsin, the meaning is clear. Mene, Mene, that is, God has measured out the years of your reign, and Tekel, you are done. Ufarsin, God will break up your empire and give it to the Persians. See you, chump. And the text tells us, quote, On that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom when he was 62 years old. Chapter 6 finds Daniel serving a new master, Darius of Persia, and he's put in charge of a third of the empire. The overlords and satraps, who are now to answer to him, are displeased. Perhaps they were hoping for an internal hire instead of going outside the organization. Either way, they begin to plot a way to remove Daniel and come up with the following scheme. They convince the king to issue a decree that prohibits asking, quote, a petition of any god or man other than you, O king. And anyone who violates this decree is to be thrown into a den of lions. So when Daniel heard of this decree, his response is simple. He goes to pray, as usual, in the upper chamber of his house, at the window facing Jerusalem. So the overlords and satraps are pleased with themselves, thinking that Daniel has fallen right into their trap, and even when the king tries to find a way not to throw his trusted advisor to the lions, the plotters remind him that even the king is bound by his own decrees. So Daniel is apprehended, and as he is thrown into the lion's den, the king shouts to him, quote, Your God, whom you always worship, will save you. The king cannot eat or sleep, and in the morning he rushes to the den and, quote, shouted to Daniel with a sad voice. The king spoke out and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, your God whom you worship always, can he have saved you from the lions? When Daniel responds that he's okay, the king has him released and orders the overlords and satraps who schemed against Daniel and their families to be thrown into the den and, quote, they had barely touched the bottom of the den, when the lions overwhelmed them and crunched all their bones. Chapter 7 takes us back to King Belshazzar, more specifically to a dream he had during the previous king's reign. This chapter inaugurates the second section of this book, that of Daniel's visions. Daniel describes his dream vision in the first person of four great beasts rising from the sea. The first is a lion with eagle's wings standing on its hind legs. The second is a bear, and the third is a leopard with four wings and four heads. The fourth, Daniel sees, quote, among the visions of the night and look, a fourth beast fearsome and terrifying and exceedingly powerful, and it had great iron teeth. It was devouring and mangling, and the remains at its feet it trampled, and it was different from all the beasts before it, and it had ten horns. And what fresh hell is this? And then there's this figure of the, quote, ancient of days who takes the throne. There's rivers of fire and ministering hosts and, quote, one like a human being was coming and he reached the ancient of days and they had him approach before him and to him were given dominion and honor and kingship and all the people, nations and tongues did serve him. 
Daniel cannot make heads nor tails of this, so an angel appears to explain it all to him. The four beasts represent four empires, and the ten horns represent kings, with the eleventh king putting an end to the three empires. But this king will be arrogant and try to harm God's people by trying to change their religion and practices. But in the end, God's people will prevail. Pathetic fallacy is defined as a literary device in which human emotions are attributed to aspects of nature, such as the weather. There are countless examples in the Western canon of this device, but the one that comes to mind evoked by this section of the book of Daniel is Act 3 of King Lear. But first, a quick recap of Acts 1 and 2. Shakespeare's King Lear is a tragedy based on the legendary story of Lair, King of the Britons, recounted in Geoffrey of Monmouth's 12th century pseudo-historical work, History of the Kings of Britain. When we meet Lear, he is aging and wants to retire from the duties of the monarchy, so he decides to divide his realm among his three daughters and declares he will offer the largest share to the one who loves him most. The eldest, Goneril, speaks first and just lards it on, which Lear eats up. He is equally taken with the flatteries of his middle daughter, Regan. But when it's finally the turn of his youngest and favorite daughter, Cordelia, to speak, she has nothing to say. Does she not love her father? Could this be? No, it's just that there are no words to capably express her love. Cordelia says she loves her father according to her obligation and bond, no more and no less, and she will reserve half of her love for her future husband. Well, Lear explodes into a rage and disinherits Cordelia on the spot, dividing her share between her elder sisters. When the Earl of Kent speaks up to defend Cordelia, he too faces the wrath of Lear and is banished. Lear announces that he will live with Goneril for a spell and then with Regan and their husbands, but he soon discovers that Goneril and Regan weren't sincere about their declarations of love and that they will not entertain their aging father's needs. Surprise! 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 When Goneril orders Lear to reduce his entourage, he throws a fit and departs for Regan's estate, but when he arrives there, he finds an even less hospitable reception. Regan is as dismissive as Goneril, and there's nothing Lear can do about it. He's consumed with rage at his newfound impotence, and cursing his daughters, he storms out and into a wild storm brewing in the heath. The doors are shut and locked behind him, and only the fool accompanies Lear as the king in decline faces down the elements. Kent, disguised as a servant, follows to protect him, but in this moment... It's a diminished, confused Lear confronting the powers of nature. He commands the storm, quote, Blow, winds, and crack your cheeks. Rage, blow. You cataracts and hurricanes, spout till you have drenched our steeples, drowned the cocks. You, sulfurous of thought-executing fires, vaunt carriers of oak-cleaving thunderbolts, singe my white head. And thou, all-shaking thunder, strike flat the thick rotundity of the world. Crack nature's molds, all Germans spill at once. That makes ingrateful man. Rumble thy bellyful, spit fire, spout rain. Thunder, fire. 
Empire are my daughters. I tax you not, you elements, with unkindness. I never gave you kingdom, called you children. You owe me no subscription, then let fall your horrible pleasure. Here I stand, your slave. A poor, infirm, weak, and despised old man. But yet I call you servile ministers. That will, with two pernicious daughters, join your high-engendered battles against a head so old and white as this. Oh. Oh, tis foul. But the storm pays him no mind, much like his daughters. He has no grasp of the natural world, just like he has no understanding of how his daughters would treat him once they got what they wanted from him. Lear wanders around in the storm, cursing the weather and challenging it to do its worst, and despite the tumult in his mind, he is clear on one thing. His two pernicious daughters have betrayed him. The fool who accompanies him urges him to humble himself before his daughters and seek shelter indoors, but Lear ignores him. Kent finds the two of them and urges them to take shelter inside a nearby hovel. This is the moment in Act 3, Scene 2, where we can see Lear palpably shift. Something has changed in him. He suddenly notices his fool and asks, How dost, my boy, art cold? He adds, I have one part in my heart that's sorry yet for thee. It's the first time that the imperious king has taken notice of another human being and expressed concern. Does this mean that Lear has learned some humility? It's entirely possible. Lear sends his fool into the hovel to take shelter, then kneels in prayer, but he does not pray for himself. Instead, he asks the gods to help. Quote, poor naked wretches, wheresoever you are, that bide the pelting of this pitiless storm. Later, as the political scheming and plot unfolds, we return to Lear, who has decorated himself with flowers and grasses. Cordelia describes Lear's madness in Act 4, Scene 4, quote, As mad as the vexed sea singing aloud, crowned with rank fumiter and furrow weeds, with hordocks, hemlock, nettles, cuckoo flowers, darnel, and all the idle weeds that grow. Lear has gone feral, reverting to nature to adorn himself. He has no power over nature, but sees himself as a small, meaningless component of it. This insight, however, doesn't cure Lear of his madness. When Cordelia returns at the end of the play, Lear isn't able to recognize her because of his state of madness. Nevertheless, she forgives him for banishing her. By the time Lear finally and temporarily regains his reason and realizes who Cordelia is, they have little time to talk and reconcile before she is executed. In a different place and different time, it could have all turned out differently as it did for Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonian king was not near the end of his reign, but too infatuated with its grandeur and power, and despite his subconscious mind warning him to change his ways, not to trust too much in his own perspective and the urgings of his trusted advisor Daniel, he continues with his conceit of all-powerful monarch and, like Lear, drinks his own Kool-Aid. He, too, would be cast out of the palace with the gates locked behind him. There would be no storm reflecting the tumult of his thoughts, but Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the ancient Near East, would be reduced to eating, quote, grass like the ox, and from the dew of the heavens his body was moistened until his hair grew like eagles and his nails like birds. 
Like Lear, he would wander the heath wild and feral, but unlike Lear, who cursed the storm and his daughters and descended further into madness, Nebuchadnezzar's nature time was a time to reset, to reframe his perspective. As the king himself says, quote, at the end of the many days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes to the heavens and my mind returned to me. And I bless the Most High and praise and extol the Eternal One whose dominion is an eternal dominion and his kingdom for all generations. And with the return of the king's mind, so too did the glory, grandeur, and splendor, but also a new understanding. And quote, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heavens, all of whose acts are truth and whose paths are justice and who can bring low those who go about in pride. Okay, you know, this is a good habit of mind for a man with unchecked power. But here's the thing, Nebuchadnezzar, or more precisely, Nebuchadnezzar II was the second king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire from 605 BCE to his own death in 562. He ruled for 43 years, the longest reigning king of the Chaldean dynasty, and regarded as one of the most powerful rulers in the world. His abrupt departure from the palace to wander the heath would have garnered some mention in the historical record, but if you look... There is, however, reports of something like this happening to Nebuchadnezzar's eventual successor, Nabonidus, the last king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, who ruled from 556 BCE to the fall of Babylon to the Achaemenid Empire under Cyrus the Great in 539 BCE. Is the Nabonidus of history the Babylonian king Belshazzar as described in chapter 5? Maybe. Nabonidus was incapacitated from exercising kingship for a period of about 10 years, which, Robert Alter points out, would have been rounded down to seven in accordance with the general use of formulaic numbers in the Tanakh. There is also a fragmentary text found at Qumran in the Dead Sea Basin that scholars call the Prayer of Nabonides. In this text, Nabonidus prays to be healed from an evil disease with which he has been stricken, this was not the case here in Daniel or in Shakespeare. In Lear, the stricken king prays for, quote, poor naked wretches wheresoever you are that bide the pelting end of this pitiless storm. How shall your houseless heads and unfed sides, your looped and windowed raggedness, defend you from seasons such as these? Oh, I have taken too little care of this. Take physic pomp, expose thyself to feel what wretches feel, that thou mayest shake the superflux to them and show the heavens more just. In our story, Nebuchadnezzar's breakdown demonstrates how God can bring the mighty low or raise him up again. In Lear's, the king's break with reality shows how truly powerless we all are. But the moral in both cases is clear. Those vested with power must use it wisely and look after the weak and the vulnerable. That's essentially what their power is for. And if they use it for other, more venal purposes, they take their sanity and their life into their own hands. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning for this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 223, when we conclude the Book of Daniel 
with chapters 8 through 12.